Alyssa fixes everything, I think, back there. <laughs> good morning, ladies. I hope you had a, a good evening. Good night's rest. Are you feeling balanced this morning? <laughs> Kinda. Um, well, when I got back to my uh, hotel room, there was a lovely gift basket waiting for me. So thank you, whoever did that. It was full of goodies. Um, thank you for the music, all that's going on. You know, they're kind of like a girl band, right? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of fun. <laughs> okay, um, I do this morning. All right, I have my clock right here. See? See all the things that we can do with our phones? So I'm going to do my best to stay on time this morning. Uh, as we start this morning... Um, we will start with our praise passage again. You know, last night we were talking about balance in life, just in general. And then our final two lessons today, we are going to relate more specifically to the issue of trials and suffering. Again, I know in a room this size with this many people, there are many burdens, many heartaches that... I can't know about. I just know there are. And so I can't know what you're going through. You can't know what I'm going through. But the Lord does. And he is so faithful to take his word and quicken it to our hearts and comfort us and encourage us. And that is my prayer for today as we look at his uh, wise counsel and the riches of his word. All right, if you would. Take out your booklets. Um, does everyone have your outline? Okay. Anybody not have a program? Anybody? All right. Just want to. I think it makes it so much easier to listen if you can have something to follow along with. All right. Turn to the second praise passage. And this is from one of my absolute favorite psalms. If you like to memorize scripture, this is a great one to memorize. This is Psalm 145. And this psalm is one of my favorites. One of the reasons is because it's one of the best pictures in the psalms of God's transcendence, which means just his otherness, how high he is above us, how different he is from us, his transcendence. He is above everything. He is beyond our comprehension. But this psalm also gives us great pictures what we call his eminence and his eminence is that he is with us he is near he is close he has compassion for us he raises the people up that are bowed down all right and that's his eminence so here in psalm 45 we see that balance between those two things we're only going to read the first 10 verses but i would encourage you to go home and read the whole psalm because it's beautiful let's start with verse one I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. And his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. All right, let's give our time to the Lord. Father, we praise you. We honor you. Lord, your greatness truly is unsearchable. It's beyond our comprehension. And so we bow at your feet in worship. And Lord, we praise you for who you are, for your righteousness, for your holiness, for 
just your greatness that is so far beyond what we can understand. Lord, we thank you for your compassion, for your mercy, for your kindness, and for your goodness. We marvel at the God that you are. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you so much that you loved us enough to send your son to die for us, to pay the price for our sin. Lord, I thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives within us and who teaches us and comforts us and quickens your word to our hearts. The Spirit increases our understanding. And Lord, we just thank you for the goodness that you show us. Lord, I pray for every lady here. Lord, you know their hearts. You know the joys and the sorrows that they carry. And I pray today, take every word of your holy word and just plant it deep in their hearts. Lord, give them courage. Give them encouragement. Give them comfort that only you can give and that only can come from your word. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that you are in control of everything, that nothing comes into our lives except that you have allowed it for a good purpose, for your glory and for our good. And we trust you in that. Lord, I ask for your help as I teach. Please help me to clearly try to express what we find in your word. I pray that you would guard my lips, that I would not say anything that you would not have me to say. We give you this day, pray that everything that is said would be to your glory. In your precious, wonderful name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, um, I would ask you to turn to Romans chapter 12. Our text today is a very short but very powerful verse in the book of Romans, and it's Romans 12, 12 where it says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. So we're going to pull this verse apart and try to understand everything that it contains. Uh, the book of Romans is such a foundational book in the New Testament, and so I want to very quickly set the context for what we will be discussing today. In the first three chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul thoroughly examines mankind's biggest problem, which is our sin that separates us from a holy God. Then in chapter 4 and following, we see God's answer to that problem, that God sent his only beloved son to die in our place and to bear the full punishment for our sin. Chapter 4 takes us back to Abraham and reminds us that his faith in God was credited to him as righteousness. And then we come to chapter 5, which is one of my favorites. And in chapter 5, we find that rich uh, discussion of justification by faith. Verse 1 starts off, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 is a wonderful chapter. Then we move to chapters 6 through 8, where Paul begins to examine the process of sanctification in the believer's life. Um, if you like to memorize scripture, again, chapter 8 is one of my favorites. At the end, chapter 8 virtually explodes in a celebration of the profound riches that are ours because we are in Christ. Then Paul moves in chapters 9 through 11 to a discussion specifically about the past and the future of the nation of Israel. So that's a very quick overview of those first 11 chapters. And now what we come to is chapter 12. So again, we see this pattern in a lot of Paul's writings, basically all of his letters. This is what he does. He gives a very comprehensive doctrinal discussion, and then he moves to the practical application. So in Romans, there's a logical progression of thought. Here is the problem. Here is how God solved it. And here is what we have as a result of that solution. So 
we come to chapter 12, and Paul is saying, okay, based on this, based on everything I have told you, how should we live? How should we live in response to this great salvation that we have been given? How do we live in order to show our gratitude for God's love and mercy? What difference does it make in our lives? Many, many years ago, 30 years ago, when we lived in California, I've never forgotten this evening, we had our neighbors over one night who did not know Christ, and we were talking with them, and um, after my husband had given his testimony and talked a lot about the gospel, I will never forget the, the young wife unknowingly asked a great question. I remember she just looked at my husband and she said, what difference does it make in your life? And I remember thinking, what a profound, insightful question. What difference does it make in our lives? It should make a huge difference. Um, I think of that uh, scripture where it talks about the resurrection. And remember, Paul says, if the resurrection is not true, and we only have hope here in this life, we are of all men to be pitied. And I think of that in relation to this. If our faith does not make a difference in how we live every day, every hour, then what, what does it matter? What good is it? So he's going to tell us in Romans chapter 12 what difference it should make. Now, as we start in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, Paul right up front says, you are to be a living sacrifice. And in the rest of the chapter, he gets very detailed about, okay, what does that look like? What does a living sacrifice look like? Especially in relation to other people in the body of Christ. In verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12, he addresses the subject of spiritual gifts. And then in verses 9 through 21, he gives this long list of bullet points that tell us specifically how we are to live. So... Chapter 12 is showing us how we should live as children of God on this earth. Of course, we know, thankfully, we will not be here forever. Uh, the world, thank heavens, this world is not all there is. And the older I get, the more I feel that way. Um, Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is not here. It's not in this world. It is in heaven Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Set your mind on the things above. But while the Lord leaves us here, we are to be busy about the work of the kingdom. In relation to the lost world, we are to be witnesses. We're to be salt and light. We are to be telling lost people how to be reconciled to God. In relation to our brothers and sisters, in the body of Christ, we are to be busy edifying, encouraging, and exhorting one another. So, scripture is very clear. We are not just on hold while we're here in this earth. We are not just sitting around waiting to go to heaven, you know, just counting the minutes till we can get out of here. No, we have things to do while we're here. Our true home is heaven, and we're told to be eternally minded, but while we're here, we have much to do. So, in chapter 12, what are some of these bullet points that Paul gives us? You can follow along with me in this chapter. Starting in verse 9, we're told not to not be hypocrites, but to genuinely love other people. We are commanded to hate evil and cling to what is good. We're instructed to prefer others and be passionate and diligent in serving the Lord. We're to be hospitable. We are to share with others. When we're persecuted, we are told not to retaliate, but to bless our enemies. We're told to rejoice with people. We're told to weep with people when they're grieving. We are to humble ourselves, and as much as possible, we must strive to be at peace with all men. We are never to take revenge on someone, but we are to always Trust the Lord to do what is right. And finally, the last verse of chapter 12 exhorts us 
to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. So right in the middle of all these things, boom, 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 do this, do this, do this, do this. Right in the middle, in verse 12, we are suddenly given this little, this profound little verse, verse 12, where it talks about rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and being devoted in prayer. Now, why do you think the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to put this little verse right in the middle of that list? Well, I hate to be the one to break it to you ladies, but life is sometimes hard. Have you figured that out yet? And sometimes it can be very hard. Even when we know we are saved by God's grace and we know we are his children and we know we will spend eternity with him, we still live in a broken world that is full of sin, sorrow, and disappointment. That's the way it has been since the garden, and that is the way it will be until Jesus comes back to make everything right. And as we try to be balanced, as we try to go about treating others the way that we should, we can sometimes get very weary and very discouraged. Sometimes the discouragement comes from looking at ourselves we try to love people and prefer others above ourselves, but all too often it becomes painfully clear that we love ourselves most of all. We don't want to be hypocrites, and yet at times, again, we're devastated when we see a lack of honesty or integrity in our lives. We want to hate evil and love good, but we're overwhelmed by the many times we compromise with sin and we fail to do what is right. Sometimes our discourage is, discouragement is related to the people around us. We invest in the lives of other people, sometimes for years and years, and then without warning, they walk away from us, from the church, maybe even from the faith. We work so hard trying to plan ahead and make wise choices in life. We spend countless hours pouring out our hearts to the Lord in prayer, and then nothing really turns out the way that we had thought it would. We spend years and years praying for our children and raising them the best way we know how, and sometimes they do things that break our hearts. And at these hard times in this earthly life, we can get disillusioned and depressed and feel like giving up. So here is our question. How do we keep on going when we're discouraged? How do we persevere? And I think this little verse in Romans gives us three keys that will enable us to be enduring people no matter what trials come into our lives. And this verse tells us what it should look like. As believers, we should be people who are known for rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted in prayer. It's easy to see the connection between hope, perseverance, and prayer. We do have hope in the Lord, but while in this world, we also have trials and tribulations. And so prayer is one of the main things that will enable us to persevere. Prayer gives us strength in the midst of our suffering. You know, it's interesting that in Romans chapter 8, Paul lays out this very same pattern from hope to endurance to prayer. In verse 24 of chapter 8, he says that we are saved by hope, and he says we don't hope for what we see. We hope for what we don't see. And then he says, we with patience wait for it. And then in the very next verse, he starts talking about prayer. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helps us with our infirmities. And the Spirit himself prays for us according to the will of God. He makes intercession for us. So he's telling us there that prayer is absolutely essential 
as we're going through suffering. So hope, perseverance, and prayer are very intertwined. And so we are going to call these three keys to faithful endurance in life and ministry. And I say ministry, I add ministry in there because until you are putting these keys in, into practice in your own life, you will not be able really to minister to others who are going through suffering and helping them persevere through their own difficulties. And we must be committed to ministering to each other. All right, so what is the first key to being an enduring Christian? The first one is confident hope. The main focus in this first phrase is the concept of hope. Hope is absolutely essential in the Christian life. I've given you a list of scriptures, just a few. Psalm 39, 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Uh, Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that in the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Uh, Hebrews 6 talks about that sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope. So over and over, we are told to have hope in the scriptures. And do remember that hope in the Bible is completely different from the world's concept of hope. Um, the world, when they say, oh, I hope I'm going to do this or this is going to happen, it may happen and it may not, okay? But not in the Bible. Scriptural hope always has to do with what God has promised, but we just haven't received it yet, okay? It is going to happen. It just hasn't happened. It is, we call that the already, but the not yet. It is coming, and we can count on it. It is a hope that is certain, but not yet realized. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce said this, the fact that we do not see some of the promises yet is very important. For it means that as Christians, we will have our eyes fixed on invisible spiritual things. Christians are different from the lost world because we don't look at the things that are seen. In the book, I made a comment that we, until the Lord comes back, we are the children of the unseen, the things that are not seen. Those are the eternal things. Second Corinthians 4, I love this verse. It says, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Christian's hope is completely rooted in eternal things. It is based on objective truth, not subjective truth like the world does. It's not affected by our circumstances at all. God is not only the object of our hope, he is also the source of our hope. Our hope is entirely dependent on the character of God and on the promises he gives us in his word. Romans 15 says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So what do we hope for? In scripture, the word hope is primarily related to the second coming of Christ, that he has ascended and he will come back. He will return as the triumphant king who is victorious over sin and Satan. Our hope is based on the fact that he is not finished with this world and in the end, he will make everything right. In particular, Titus 2.13 says that our hope refers to the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hope is also very much related to the fact that when he appears, we shall be like him. In Romans 5.2, it says that we exult in the glory, in the hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the manifestation of his character. And our hope is that one day we will share in that and we will be like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that while we're here on this earth, we are being transformed into his image little by little. As we gaze at him and study his word, 
we become a little bit more like him, but we have a long way to go. But someday, 1 John tells us that we will be like him. So our hope is related to the fact that he's coming back. Our hope is related to the fact that someday we'll be like him. And just finally, our hope is just, it's really rooted in the knowledge that we will be with him forever, forever and ever and ever in heaven. So we have many reasons for hope. First Thessalonians 5 tells us that our hope is a helmet. Why do you wear a helmet? It's for protection, and it protects us against the attacks of the enemy. First Thessalonians 5 says, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation think about all those great heroes in the hall of faith which is hebrews chapter 11 those patriarchs those saints of the ages were able to persist in their faithfulness even though it says they never received in this life the fulfillment of the promise but they were sustained by the vision of a better country. They were looking for a heavenly country, and that sustained them. They were sustained by their hope in that. Now, as we see in this first phrase, rejoicing in hope, what is the result of our hope? Joy. Hope takes us out of our present difficulties and leads us to joy. Let's think about joy for a moment. And again, in your outline, see all those scriptures? I want you to look those up when you have time. There are a lot of ways to describe Christians. We should be people who love, people who trust, people who forgive. But most of all, we should be characterized by joy. There are a lot of things in this world to discourage us, right? All you have to do is turn on the TV or read the uh, news, and it's very discouraging, all the things that are happening. But the Bible has a lot to say about joy. Joy is a byproduct of our relationship with God. Joy is different from happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. Anybody, lost people, can be happy when everything is going well. But joy is different. Joy comes from our relationship with God, and it is also a byproduct of obedience. And joy, remember, is commanded in Scripture. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 100 tells us to serve the Lord with gladness. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord, and again, I say rejoice. So we have many reasons for joy, our salvation, we are chosen, we are beloved, we are forgiven, we have assurance about eternity, and because of this, we should be able to endure any suffering that comes our way in this life. There's also reasons for joy that are related to serving Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if we are steadfast, and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, he assures us our toil is not in vain, and that should, that should bring us great joy. Matthew 25 says, if we are faithful, we can look forward to hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the, what? The joy of your Lord. I love uh, the writings of Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great British pastor of many years ago. He wrote an excellent book, if you like to read, called Spiritual Depression. And he makes the statement in here, in that book, he says, why would anyone want to be a Christian when they look at us and see so many depressed Christians? And that was very convicting. Why should they want to be Christians sometimes when they look at our reaction to things in our lives? Lost people, they have no hope. Again, they can have happiness. They can have temporary hope. But really, they have no source of hope. Okay, They have no object of hope. And 
they should see something different in us. They need to look at us and say, she's different. How can she have joy in the midst of that circumstance? So to summarize, hope is crucial in the Christian life, and biblical hope always will lead us to joy. It's very hard to separate them because they're very often connected in Scripture. Um, I had a dear Bible study teacher back when I was in college, and uh, he, he loved to memorize Scripture. He had chapters and chapters and chapters, and he encouraged all his, his students to do a great deal of memorization and storing God's Word in our hearts. But I remember one thing he used to say. He said, you know, sometimes you ask a fellow believer, you know, how they're doing. Maybe you know that they're having some challenges, going through some things. And he said many times they will say, well, under the circumstances, you know, I'm doing okay. And he would always say, what are you doing under there, okay? Why are you under your circumstances? In Christ, you have the ability to be above far above your circumstances. So that is our first key, rejoice in hope. What is the next key? We will call that steadfast perseverance. In uh, the second part of this verse, the word patient here is rendered persevering in the New American Standard, and I do believe that is the better translation. This is actually the only time that Paul uses this word in the entire book of Romans. The commentator Morris said this, patient may give us the wrong impression. Paul's word denotes not a passive putting up with things, but instead an active, steadfast endurance. It has the meaning of remaining instead of fleeing or running away. It means to stand one's ground, to hold out or to endure. So when he says we are to be patient in trials, it doesn't mean we're just to be resigned to some sort of stoic, fatalistic um, type of endurance. But instead, we must understand we are not defeated, but we're waiting confidently to see what God will do in this situation. Uh, and by the way, the word here for tribulation means deep or serious trouble, a crushing Load. So Paul is not referring here to some minor annoyance. He is referring to significant suffering and trials here. Another commentator said this, that the word perseverance implies the strength to bear up under stress plus the persistent application of this strength. And so I think the word determination also fits here. We may grow very weary of the conflict and of the battle, but we are not, as Christians, to run out in the desert and hide from the world and just wait for Christ to return. We need to be resolute. We need to be courageous. We need to be determined that we are going to hang in there, be faithful, continue to serve the Lord, and proclaim the gospel, no matter what we happen to be going through. The Bible makes it very clear that suffering is inevitable in this life. And in our last lesson today on trusting God, we'll talk a little more about that. But we can't forget what Jesus told his disciples in John 16. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We have to keep reminding ourselves that this world, with all of its trouble, is not all there is, and we must hold on and hold out for the hope that is to come. I love James 5, where he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soul, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You, too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't forget also that the Bible tells us endurance is the sign of a true believer. Mark 13, 13, he who endures to the end will be saved. 
I think about Galatians 5. Remember the fruits of the Spirit? Patience, faithfulness. These are some of the fruits and signs of genuine faith. You know, what I have observed over and over through the years is that far for an unbeliever, trials often, not always, but often trials drive them away from God, drive them to more anger and bitterness. Again, not always. Many times God does use hardship and, and suffering to draw a lost person to himself. But for the believer, I have seen this over and over. For the true believer, trials and suffering generally drive them to God, drive them back to God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that our trials are preparing for us eternal glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. When we're in the middle of affliction, I will grant you, it does not feel momentary or light. But the Bible tells us that in comparison to eternity, it is. It's very light. As I was studying this verse, I couldn't help but be reminded of one of my most favorite word pictures in the New Testament, and that is the one we find in Ephesians chapter 6, where it is talking about the armor of God. And I love, you know, it talks about having the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, and this is someone who is in the battle. This is the soldier that is fighting. And so I love verse 13, where after he lists all of this, he ends with this phrase, and having done all to stand. Here is the picture of the weary soldier who's come through a hard battle. He's exhausted, he's wounded, he's bloody, but when the dust settles, he's still standing. He's steadfast, he's determined, he's resolute, and this is who we should be in the midst of our trials. I had a dear, dear friend, a pastor's wife, who uh, went to be with the Lord several, several years ago, and she was in terrible pain, especially uh, the last couple of years of her life, excruciating pain, but every text I got from her was praising God, thanking God, always asking me, how can I pray for you? She was standing, okay? And that, that gave such a witness to me of what it means to stand in the midst of our suffering. When the Lord calls me home, unless he comes first, I may be lying in bed, but I still want to be standing spiritually. All right, let's come to our last key. The first one was rejoicing in hope. The second one is we must persevere in our trials. And finally, we come to the last key to being an enduring believer, and that is the issue of prayer. Verse 12 tells us we must be diligent in prayer. Some uh, translations say devoted to prayer. We are, again, talking about suffering this morning, and I do believe that one of the main reasons the Lord allows trial in our lives is to drive us to him, to make us completely dependent on him. When, you know how it is, ladies. I know I'm not the only one. When things are going okay, we tend to be less prayerful, less diligent. But he sends trouble into our lives and what do we do we run to Christ because we desperately need him and he makes us aware of that through our trials and prayer again there's a logical connection in this verse between persevering and being steadfast in prayer persevering in suffering because prayer is what makes that endurance in the midst of trial possible we cannot persevere in our own strength, and trials show us that. Prayer is the Christian's great resource when he's suffering. The encouragement and the comfort that we receive in prayer is what enables us to keep going. 
while there may be times when we begin to lose our grip on him, if we are his child, if we belong to him, he will never lose his grip on us. He never lets go. The Greek word that is used here means to be strong towards something, to be steadfast, to be unwavering. Uh, The commentator Morris said it can mean to busy oneself with, to be busily engaged in, and this implies persistence in prayer, not just the occasional offering of a petition as we think of it during the day. So basically, it's not just just being faithful. It means we work at it. We work to be faithful in prayer. The literal reading of the verse says this, in regard to prayer continuing. Okay, we do pray, but sometimes we have trouble continuing. Why do we fail in prayer? I mean, many people would say this is the weak link in my chain in the Christian life. First of all, there is a battle between the flesh and the spirit, and we grow weary. Believe me, Satan does not want you to pray. Okay, He trembles when we fall on our knees in prayer. Too often, we falsely believe that we're sufficient, that I can take, you know, I got this, I can take care of this, which is false. We can also go to the extreme, here's a balance, we can go to the extreme and think, well, since God is sovereign, he's going to do what he's going to do, so I don't need to pray. So we can get out of balance on either side of that. And lastly, I think sometimes we just don't really believe we have a loving Father who hears and who answers. We falsely believe that he either doesn't care or he's punishing us for something. And I remember in my younger years, I, I actually remember that Bible study teacher in college telling me, he said, Pam, God is not up in heaven with a big stick ready to hit you when you mess up. And I guess I had some of that kind of belief, but not at all. Remember, God put all of his judgment for our sin on Christ at the cross. There is no condemnation for us, as Romans 8 tells us. There is no punishment. Christ took it all. He drained the cup of wrath dry. So never think that in your trials, God is punishing you, all right? Uh, He has purposes in those trials. And so you have to be very wise, okay? There are times when he does bring judgment upon us, but it is not condemnation. It is like a loving father corrects his child who is erring. So we must learn in this area of prayer to pray according to his will. We must uh, understand that God's character is crucial as we come to him in prayer. And we must understand as best we can his character. As I said, you can go to one of those two extremes. You can think God is sovereign and there's really no use for me to to pray. Or you can go to that other extreme and think it's, it's all up to me. I have to spend hours and hours agonizing and fasting and interceding and I have to say all the right words. And we think by doing so, we can force God's hand and get whatever we want. But both of these concepts of who God is are completely wrong. D.A. Carson says this in a book that I'm going to give you some reminders about prayer. It's a wonderful little book that I recommended in your, uh, your outline. He said, it is exceedingly important to remember that prayer is not magic and that God is personal as well as sovereign. Remember that the Bible simultaneously pictures God as utterly sovereign and as a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. Jesus taught on prayer many times in his ministry. He said uh, in Luke 18, he said that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. In Psalm 62, we are told to pour out our hearts before him. So we are to be diligent in prayer, be faithful. In your syllabus, I'm just going to go through these very quickly. Here are some reminders about prayer. Before we pray, we must remember these things. We must be holy. We must be humble. We must be obedient. We must be sincere. 
Here are some other suggestions from D.A. Carson. To be a faithful prayer warrior, you need to set aside time to pray. All right? A definite time. Now, if you have little kids and babies, that may be a short time. But set aside a little bit of time to pray. But for a young mom, I found that I did most of my praying while I was washing dishes or vacuuming or changing diapers. And that is a good time to pray. All right? You can pray all day. You can have a prayer partner. You can find somebody you can pray with, which is wonderful. Uh, we should study prayer in the Bibles. Okay? Find people who have wonderful prayers and, and meditate on their prayers. We should develop a system, if this works for you, a prayer list. And I really encourage you, and I'll talk in a minute about that, about having a prayer notebook, a prayer journal. As you pray, we seek God's will and God's glory. We ask in faith. We are persistent. We must be passionate and patient. And I've given you many scriptures, so I'm encouraging to, you to look all, up all those. Um, another few su uh, suggestions. You can adopt practical ways to keep your mind focused. Uh, vocalize your prayers. Pray through biblical passages. Pray the, the uh, prayers of Scripture. It's hard to beat Paul's prayers in the Scripture. They're wonderful. Mix in your prayers confession, praise, and intercession. And always think about what is it that God wants us to ask for. What will glorify him the most? As we close, I want to quickly touch on one more issue. And this is the issue, and I'm sure your pastor has probably introduced you to it before, is the subject of the indicative and the imperative. What is the indicative? The indicative indicates something. It is a statement of something that is true. What is an imperative? An imperative is a verb that tells us to do something. The indicative deals with knowing something. The imperative verb deals with doing. I have heard it described as being our position who we are in Christ, that's the indicative. Our practice is what we do. The indicative tells us about Christ and what he's done, and based on that, who we are because we are in him. The imperative tells us what we are to do as we flesh out biblical truth in our lives. Whenever you see the word therefore or so that in scripture, that's usually an example of the indicative and the imperative. There are many, I, I love the book of Ephesians. That's one of the, the best examples to me about the indicative and the imperative. The first three chapters tell us who we are. The last three chapters tell us what we are to do. Um, I heard this described one time. The first three chapters are about our wealth in Christ. The last three chapters are about our walk our wealth and our walk. And why does this matter? Okay, the reason I even mention this is we're talking about persevering in trials. And if you don't understand the indicative and the imperative, you will have trouble persevering as you should. If you're all about the imperative, what you do, and you don't understand who you are, that becomes legalism. It's just all about what you do you can't keep it up forever, and you will be miserable. If you major just on the indicative and you ignore the imperative, you ignore the commands of Scripture, this can result in disobedience. It will result in laziness to the degree that you are refusing to live out the one another's that we are given in the Scripture. And so, again, this goes back to the subject of balance, we are to balance who we are in Christ and what we are to do because we are in Christ. And that will help us to persevere in trials. So ladies, um, just as I mentioned last night, the older brother syndrome, remember that? Older brothers are always living in the imperative. They're always concerned with what they're doing rather than understanding who they are. But the gospel is the exact opposite. The gospel focuses first and foremost on who we are in Christ. We are accepted. We are forgiven. We are loved. That's who we are. And we have been given incredible spiritual blessings, and therefore 
we obey. We do those imperatives, okay? You know, even the great Apostle Paul had to remind himself of this at times. He had to be balanced, too. In 2 Corinthians 2.13, he's discouraged, okay? He's, he's probably weary and tired, and he says this, I had no rest for my spirit. Have you ever had no rest for your spirit? Not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Paul was in distress. He had no rest for his spirit. So we understand life was hard for Paul at times, too. But then he remembered who he was, and he focused on the privileges of his position in Christ. And what happened? It gave him back his joyful perspective. So I hope you will go back and meditate on this potent little verse in Romans 12, 12. I found one commentator who very simply paraphrased it like this. He said, this verse tells us, don't give up, wait on God, and keep on praying. So my prayer for you and for me is that we will find joy in our hope, we will persevere and stand in our trials, and we will continue steadfastly in prayer. And I can promise you that when these things are true of us, we will not give up, we will not fall away, and in the end, we will still be standing. Let's pray. Father, what a challenge this is. Just to stand in the face of suffering, persecution, sorrow, tragedy. Lord, we all at times encounter these things in your life, in our lives, and we ask for your help. We pray that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to persevere, that you would enable us to keep our hope in you and to keep on praying. Father, we love you and we ask for your help in this. Please encourage every lady here as she studies your word this day. In your precious name, amen.